Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Greenwashed with Don and Jaspreet. Um, and it's our privilege today to have uh, Dr. Tom Sheehan as our special guest. Uh, doc, Dr. Sheehan is a has a degree in physics from Massachusetts Institute of Technology and a well-known science, scientist and presenter on climate issues and many other things. But he's also president of the Science and Environment Policy Project, SEPP, and president and CEO of Western Technology Incorporated. And so Tom's been doing a tour around New Zealand uh, at, at the request of some farming groups and um, especially led uh, initially by Dr. Jock Allison, who Tom wrote a paper with in 2018 on climate and, and other things, or you know, had to explain exactly the wide-ranging remit that had. But um, last night in Invercargill, uh, there was a very good crowd at a hotel, and Tom addressed them, and at the end of it, he got a standing ovation. Now, I've been to a lot of um, forums in New Zealand uh, on issues such as this, but I've never seen a standing ovation. The crowd were attentive. The, the crowd were um, there to learn and listen to something they'd never heard before. And so we're honoured to have uh, Dr. Sheehan in our presence this morning. We're giving, uh, we've got half an hour with him perhaps uh, before he gets to his last two functions today. Um, he's got stamina like an ox. So uh, let's build into it, Tom. Welcome to Greenwashed. Um, great to have you on the show. I'm glad to be here, Don. I'm happy to join you. Yeah, well, I hope they've fed you well in our um, establishments of Invercargill. Um, you know, I'm sitting about 10 k's from where you are, and um, it's another great day in the South. I hope you've enjoyed your your trip down this way. Uh, I know, as you, as we just said, uh, the, the the people that came to hear you last night were enthralled. Your presentation's about an hour long, and what were the key messages that you thought or that you present really? I mean, an hour, if you can give us a synopsis of how you present your case. Sure, I'm glad to. The very first principle that I emphasize enormously is that there is such a thing as the scientific method, and that's how we learn, that's how um, mankind progresses to the extent over many centuries that the scientific method has been followed, um, success and prosperity follow. The key to that is that your data, the measurements is what is supreme and your theory has to match the measurements. And if your theory doesn't match the measurements then go back and fix your theory, do something different, um, try a different hypothesis. The importance of data in the scientific method is supreme. You could say that data trumps theory. So people over the years, particularly with regarding climate science, have advanced various theories. And not too many of them have been successful. But recently, these two gentlemen from North America, William Van Weingarten in York, uh, Ontario, Canada, and William Happer at Princeton in the United States did a remarkable calculation that has been much too difficult to ever do in the century that has preceded us. And what they found was excellent agreement with 
actual measurements. The satellites for 40 some years now have been making measurements about the temperature of the earth as seen from above. And by golly, the calculations of Weingarten and Happer match those. Okay, now once you've got an agreement between theory and experiment, you can believe in your theory. And then you can take your theory and start uh, evaluating it for different circumstances, different uh, hypotheses, different assumptions, and you get the results that are applicable to conditions that you don't have before you. In particular, what happens if you double carbon dioxide? What happens if you double methane? You can believe a theory that has already been validated, vindicated by matching between theory and data. And that's exactly what they went ahead and did. And that's why we now know with great confidence that increasing CO2 or increasing methane is not going to make hardly any difference at all in the climate in the years ahead. And that's a really important message because if uh, a government or an international body wants to stop you or uh, tax you, they shouldn't do it because there is no important change in the climate going to come from any variation in methane or uh, nitrous oxide or CO2. And so the central message of what I have to say has to do with following the scientific method. And when you do, you've got a dependable theory. And then your dependable theory says, don't worry about uh, these greenhouse gases anymore. Fantastic. And so, listeners, I forgot to say at the outset, the reason um, Dr. Sheehan's touring New Zealand at the request of, of a group of us was, and I chaired last night's meeting in Invercargill, by the way, um, methane is an irrelevant gas is the title of his tour. So the reason we focused on methane as the heading was, of course, uh, in New Zealand, there is an attempt by a group, uh, of what well, by the parliament, to tax animals in New Zealand for their emissions of methane and nitrous oxide. And there is a bunch of farming groups who seem to be willing to throw New Zealand farmers under the bus, uh, even though they've got this information uh, that's that's come out in recent years showing that the the previous 25 years of sort of telling New Zealanders that all our animals were bad, sort of putting a, a guilty syndrome over all the New Zealand animals is fallacious. And so with that in mind, your key messages um, and, and what you've just talked about, the, the scientific method, the key messages from your, your talks really are, uh, in terms of methane, how can you short, how can you paraphrase them, Tom? Well, methane really is a greenhouse gas. It qualifies by the definition. That is, it absorbs infrared radiation. So it's a greenhouse gas, but the reason it's irrelevant is the amount of radiation it absorbs is negligible. Methane uh, is outnumbered by water, H2O, in the atmosphere, enormously outnumbered. There's 1.8 parts per million of methane. And if you look at water, which is one or 2% on a daily basis, just due to what we call humidity, the uh, H2O content of the atmosphere would be 15,000 parts per million. 
Under those circumstances, water greatly outnumbers methane. And the reality of uh, radiation and absorption is that uh, water and methane both absorb in the exact same region of the spectrum. So methane gets beat every time. And uh, there are other parameters too, having to do with the energy of the Earth's spectrum, et cetera. But mainly the importance of methane is swamped by the much greater importance of H2O. And one of the points that needs to be emphasized again and again is that the way in which the IPCC approached the problem of greenhouse gases neglected the importance of water. And when you neglect something as important as water, you're on the wrong path and you're gonna get the wrong answers. And sure enough, that's what they did. Thanks, Tom. I uh, do should uh, tell the listeners, I attended the meeting last night and it was a privilege to meet you, to listen to you afterwards and sitting in the audience, I could hear a few gasps going up around me. My two key takeaways were, you spoke about saturation, that most of the heating potential occurs in the initial bits. And you know, that's happened long past. You were showing us uh, that all the graphs, all the gases follow the same graph, a really high initial warming potential, which we crossed, I think, well before the Industrial uh, Revolution as per your graph. Would that be right? So any Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So anything we do today, according to you and the graphs and the models that you showed, which had complete concurrence with the real life data, that's, we've gone past that point a long time ago. And we still seem to be thinking that, hey, New Zealand, I mean, how big are we on the world stage? Sometimes I think we have a very overinflated sense of our importance. What is uh, your, what was your reaction when you first heard that New Zealand would be the first country in the world to tax its farmers for methane? And it's it's big money, Tom. They're talking of 144 million in the initial years per year. Well, uh, I look at the situation in which I think the United Nations, the IPCC, has invited New Zealand to set a good example for other nations and be the first to voluntarily commit economic suicide. Um, the harm to the New Zealand economy by following any of these ideas of uh, restrictions, um, regulations, taxation would vastly outweigh any benefit. Because there is no benefit if the gases involved don't make any difference. And that's the reality we have. On the saturation, uh, you have characterized it exactly correctly. It is definitely the way every one of these gases behaves. And the uh, water is so completely saturated that nobody cares what water does. Carbon dioxide saturated about 99% of all the radiation it could absorb. Now, methane at 1.8 parts per million is down at a much lower level and is not up to saturation yet. However, as I said before, there's so much more water in the atmosphere than there is methane that methane can't compete with the water molecules for absorbing radiation. So the irrelevancy of methane to the physics of the atmosphere says to me that it would be irrelevant to tax methane. And that is, and by the way, that goes for nitrous oxide as well. It's a very similar gas to methane. 
absorbs in the same part of the spectrum, does the exact same thing, and is equally irrelevant. So, so Tom, it's interesting. It's just occurred to me that do you know of any um, gases in the world that have been taxed successfully by administrations? I, I'm thinking sulfur dioxide had a tax on it somewhere in the States at one point, but it didn't last for long. Am I right? Um, there have been taxes and regulations put on certain gases. The biggest gas that is poisonous that we really worked hard to get rid of is carbon monoxide, which is poisonous, and which came out of people's exhaust pipes from the beginning of automobiles until the 1970s, when the requirement for cleaning up the exhaust was uh, introduced, and everyone now has a catalytic converter on their car, which converts carbon monoxide to carbon dioxide. Because there's platinum in there, that increased the price of a car by something like $500 or $1,000, but it did the job. You go to these big cities nowadays, you can drive around without choking to death because uh, the stuff that's in the air used that would have been carbon monoxide got fixed and is now carbon dioxide. So the carbon dioxide uh, is a good example of how legislation, regulation, taxation can accomplish an important goal. Right. And by the way, sulfur dioxide was similarly treated as it comes out of factories a lot. And that too has gone away pretty much now. Fantastic. So look, we've we've covered um, very quickly, um, as as I asked, a uh, the, the real crux of your, your topics, but one that New Zealand constantly gets beaten up on uh, by its own media. Um, and by the way, listeners, uh, Tom's been here about 10 days and run several meetings and there's not one column inch being uh, dedicated in mainstream media to his uh, his topics. Uh, that is a disappointment, shame on mainstream media. Um, but the other point that we get beaten up on all the time in New Zealand is around global warming potential. So that's uh, relative to CO2. And often we're told that in a hundred year time span, methane has a global warming potential, depending on the reporter, but mostly 28 times CO2 and nitrous oxide close to 300. Tell us your view on the relevancy of global warming potential based on what you have observed and are talking about. Is it relevant at all? No, it's a mistake. It's an erroneous calculation. And I am surprised and disappointed that people who should know better haven't noticed this and figured it out. They were trying to form a ratio of which is more important, methane or carbon dioxide, and how much. Let's get a number of relative importance. They then proceeded to make some very faulty assumptions about both carbon dioxide in the long run and methane in the long run. And that led them to a calculation in which the numerator was an ordinary number, the denominator was extremely close to zero. And if you remember your fourth grade mathematics, you can't divide by zero. But when you try to divide by a number close to zero, you get a quotient that is whoppingly big. And that's where a number like 28 came from. And by the way, nitrous oxide, which is even less of a threat, uh, wound up with a ratio of uh, GWP of about 315. Uh, that's an absurd number. It has nothing to do with physical reality. 
it's entirely due to defective calculations. Sure. So, so just to um, clarify, I, I'm aware that refrigerants are used uh, in our air conditioning and our uh, heat pumps we have in New Zealand. Uh, they have sort of um, different refrigerants. Run one that currently is being phased out in New Zealand is four one zero A. It supposedly has a GWP of about two thousand times CO two, according to the data that I read. Um, is that relevant? Because we are aware that refrigerants can be deleterious to the atmosphere. Is that right? Well, again, there are such small quantities. Uh, you could take all the refrigerators in everybody's house in the world, uh, break them apart today, release all the freon, and you would never notice it at all because these are real tiny amounts. The, the huge number that they calculated is just another example of trying to divide by a number close to zero. Same mistake, but bigger because there is even less freons. But again, the atmosphere is a big place. Carbon dioxide, we talk about in gigatons per year. Water would be giga, gigatons. It's just way much more. And it, the absorption by water completely swamps anything that the freons could possibly do. Right. So, so look, you know, it, listeners, you, it, it's amazing how we have been treated to 25 years or more of this story that has slowly become so ingrained in our national psyche that uh, even the pharma magazines um, ham up this, this big risk to New Zealand uh, and big, big risk of the atmosphere if we continue with our naughty little naughty animal emissions. Um, it's now deeply entrenched in our trade negotiations. Everyone seems to talk about uh, if you don't do this now, if you don't tax your farmers and, and they they try to uh, infer, uh, infer that if you don't get your emissions reduced, uh, there will be trade barriers. And so we're locking ourselves into some sort of serious stra uh, serious straitjacket. Is the American farmers, are they getting this sort of pressure? Do you know? Uh, not that I know of. There's no uh, effort in any way to tax uh, methane in America. However, the government is attempting to regulate uh, methane by getting people to uh, abandon their gas stoves in the kitchen and switch to electric stoves. Um, I have an electric stove in my house and it works fine, but I got nothing against anybody who's got a gas stove. Uh, the attempt by the government in America to eliminate gas stoves, I believe, is sure to fail because the people will just not go along with it. They'll reject it. And um, so I don't think the effort to regulate against methane in America is going to be successful. And I don't think it'll be successful in any other country of the world either. You spoke last night, Tom, about uh, how the media discourse in the U.S. has now come to the stage where everyone openly laughs. You know, why did you break up with your girlfriend? I think that was the example you cited. Mm -hmm. Well, climate change and so on. So how how have things reached there? What are the people seeing there, you know, that New Zealanders are not seeing? Because out here, the ideology is so deeply ingrained, as Don just mentioned, a joke like that wouldn't pass muster here. People believe it so deeply. 
Well, what happened starting some, oh, 35 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, Al Gore, uh, an important politician in the 20th century, um, started beating the drum for global warming and be afraid and everything's going to be bad and we're going to have terrible troubles and the, our cities are going to be flooded by the rising sea, etc. And about two decades later, people look back and said, you know, not one single prediction of that type came true. And we have late night comedians in um, on television in, in America that drive the conversation to a certain extent. And they began ridiculing uh, Gore and the global warming thing some uh, probably a decade ago. And now it has become commonplace for everybody to ridicule that. One of the reasons for the emphasis on methane is because people have grown tired of hearing about carbon dioxide. And um, the reaction of the public is completely at variance with the reaction of those in the political theater. Um, The concern about global warming among the public is very, very low. Unfortunately, school children have been taught to be worried about uh, global warming, but the the grown-ups in general are not too concerned about it anymore, mainly because they've been told over and over again that it's really, really bad, And it hasn't turned out to be bad at all. It almost seems to me like the next uh, person we should bring along on a tour should be an American comedian. I don't. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, maybe. Uh, Maybe we could bring on over John Kerry because to me, he's a comedy act and play. Uh, Maybe, Tom, you've got an opinion about his recent (laughs) attack on farming in America, where he is saying that we need to reduce effectively the a large chunk of the beef herd. We need to just get rid of that. So. Um, he's playing He's playing games because, as you say, I think the, the game is this, the CO2 argument that um, Ocasio-Cortez and others and the Green New Deal proponents have been on about for years is fail, failing them and they need to find some other whipping boy. And it seems to me that the beef animals of America are now in John Kerry's sights, as they are in Ireland and many other places around the world. Uh, it seems to me in New Zealand, by the way, and I am getting political again, that it is convenient to whip up a fervour of um, angst against the New Zealand animal population as well, because um, the CO2 argument is not palatable to the to the, to the mums and dads and, and paying their power bills and the like. Uh, so we're in a bit of a bind, but I think, uh, Jaspreet, if we need a comedy act, I think John Kerry and a few other politicians could be their prime acts. Oh, good. As a matter of fact, uh, Kerry is seen with a certain comic uh, uh, outlook because of his luxurious personal lifestyle that shows he's such a hypocrite that the public in America pretty much dismisses Kerry as a serious spokesman about climate. Um, he's worn out as welcome. Uh, he did. He was a candidate for president in 2004, but since then he has taken on various posts in Democratic administrations, and he has been beating the same drum for a long time while going jet-setting around and uh, living in mansions and a whole bunch of things like that that are clearly wasteful of energy, and the public doesn't like that. And when you don't like a guy, you dismiss the things he's preaching about 
And that's exactly what's happened to John Kerry. And golly, it couldn't happen to a more deserving fellow. Well, it, it's interesting, um, Tom. I'm going to be driving you to um, a couple of meetings today, and we're going to drive along the presidential highway between Gore and Clinton. And that <laughs> that just happens to be the highway that uh, was coined, had that name um, attached to it when uh, President Clinton was in power and Al Gore was his deputy, I think. And about 2003, when I was one of the leading lights in the Fight Against Ridiculous Taxes campaign, we um, drove the petition that started in Invercargill and ended up in Wellington uh, along that highway. And I had to hand over to the um, Otago president of Federated Farmers at the time. So I'll show you, you'll, you'll feel you'll feel it today, Tom. You'll absolutely feel the power of Clinton and Gore. I see. Okay. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> hey, so, so and that I I've we're sort of deflecting from the real serious stuff here. Um, and I don't want to do that because we are talking about a real serious um imposition that potentially if the farming groups of New Zealand continue their nonsense uh in the Wellington machinery of selling out to the noise um of the Wellington Beltway. Uh, we've got a big problem. So it's a serious issue and every New Zealander should be worried about it. Provincial New Zealand is every dollar taken out of provincial New Zealand uh, to feed this machine called a methane research or, or methane research organisations is a, is a dollar that can't be spent in the provinces. And that's a problem. It is, yeah. yeah. Um, the dollars is a big issue on all of this in every country. Um, you want to tax methane in the United States? Every guy who has the rank of assistant manager at a McDonald's can calculate what the price of a big cheeseburger is going to be if methane is taxed and or driven out or in any way the price of meat goes way up. They know how to calculate how far they have to raise their prices. And when the American public finds out the price of a McDonald's hamburger is going to go from three bucks to six bucks, or a Big Mac is going to go from six dollars to twelve dollars, they are going to scream no. And that's the reality in our yeah. country. And I imagine that if the people of New Zealand, the non-farmers, knew how much the prices were going to go up for some of these erroneous and fruitless policies, they would scream no just the same. Yep, there's nothing quite like an economic reality check, no matter how much we try to preempt the pain for everyone. I'm not sure if you're aware, to, uh, Tom, so our national inflation is tracking at just under 7%, but behind the farm gate, it is closer to 20%. Farmers are really hurting here. This weekend, this Friday coming, I am scheduled to attend uh, a program arranged by a local publican here about uh, rural suicide prevention. And we have a couple of farmer advocates coming. And the irony has never escaped me. We are driving the herding the farmers down this route, absolutely trashing their mental health. And then we have, you know, we decide that putting a Band-Aid on that is, is all right. But, you know, just to end the interview, you've been here close to two weeks now. You've been to the field days, so many meetings. We've really run you ragged. What what impression have you had of, of over your talks with you know meeting farmers and others? What takeaways have you got as you leave New Zealand soon? The farmers of New Zealand are better than farmers in other parts of the world. They're more efficient. They're smarter. 
they know how to manage their animals and their crops and their business of farming. And I think they are to be honored rather than taxed or uh, uh, regulated. Um, New Zealand's got a farming industry it can be proud of and it should be proud of on the world scene. And instead of being the volunteer to go first to commit economic suicide, I think New Zealand should be the one that sets the leadership for the rest of the world in farming practices. So I have had a very nice visit here for um, close to two weeks in which I've learned an awful lot about farming. And I think your farmers are setting the standard for good performance in the rest of the world. Well, it's gratifying to hear, Tom. And uh, I often say that uh, New Zealand farmers from 1985, and I know that seems a long time ago, we set the international gold standard uh, in production um, of, of our animal products, and it was subsidy-free, production subsidy-free. That's the gold standard of, of an, an ETS. It's an efficiency trading scheme that the world should be proud of. Um, why we've got into this next ETS mode, this emissions trading scheme, makes no sense to those of us that were, were, were at the painful beginning of the subsidy-free period. Uh, those of us that were starting our career then really were under the pump. Um, so it, it is like uh, we are the convenient whipping boy for the tax man in Wellington and running the, you know, the agendas of those people that don't produce much themselves other than regulation. So, yeah, look, that was a long statement to end. I... I have to say, uh, again, listeners, Reality Check Radio is really um, grateful for people like you, Tom, coming on and telling the story. Uh, I'm in your debt. The, the farmers of New Zealand that uh, have attended your meetings are in uh, your debt. Um, the standing ovation last night was well and truly deserved. And um, may you get some sleep uh, very soon because you've put a lot of effort in. Your stamina is great, uh, but we're just honoured to have had you in our presence. And if one thing can be achieved is we get our farmer organisations to stop sitting on the damn fence and putting us under the bus as they're doing currently. So, look, if that's the end game here for us um, and you've been part of achieving it, then fantastic. Great to have you on our show, uh, Reality Check Radio Greenwashed with Jasper and Don. And that was Dr. Tom Sheehan. Thanks very much, Tom. Thank you very much, Don, as well. Thank you All so right. much, Tom. Bye-bye. Jaspreet Boparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. 